Welcome to This is Type 1, real life type 1 diabetes with your hosts, Colleen and Jesse. I'm Colleen Mitchell, and I've had type 1 diabetes for over 24 years. By day, I'm a process analyst in the power industry, and by night, I'm a writer, podcast host, and accountability coach. I'm passionate about type 1 diabetes education and showing others that this disease doesn't define me. I'm Jesse Tuggy, and I've had type 1 diabetes for about eight years now. I love hiking and painting, and I'm looking forward to working as an engineer after college. My diagnosis has inspired me to take control of my future and learn everything I can about it. Each week on the show, we'll talk about real life with type 1 diabetes, bring on cool people with connections to type 1, and above all, encourage you to understand that this disease doesn't have to hold you back. This isn't medical advice. This is life with type 1. Welcome to episode 46 of This is Type 1, real life type 1 diabetes with your hosts, Colleen and Jesse. Today, we're talking with Stacy Juba, an author whose life was upended when her daughter was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. Today, we talked to her about her book writing, her experience with type 1, and all the advice she has for the newly diagnosed people out there. Reminder for everybody, if you have any questions about type 1 diabetes, please leave us a comment or send an email to colleen at inspiredforward.com. We answer listener questions in future episodes. Jesse, you have the win of the week. I'm frankly actually really proud of this win. So I had some bad insulin. That's not really good. Now for the non-diabetics out there, bad insulin can really put you through the ringer. So on, I believe it was Monday, I changed out my site because I wasn't feeling that great and I had been in the upper 200s all day. Mind you, this insulin was from the same vial of insulin that I was about to put in my pump. So I changed my site, not knowing that I was putting bad insulin into my pump and my blood sugar didn't go down. It actually went up instead. So instead of hovering in the upper 200s, I was now borderline 400s, upper 300s. I believe I drank 200 ounces of water that day just to try and get my blood sugars down and I went on about three or four walks. I personally thought it was because of something that I ate because my mom and I were trying out new smoothies that she makes from scratch. So she added a new mixture in today from Costco. It was just a raw fruit frozen blend. So we thought that could be it and I didn't drink it the next day. I didn't have anything the next day because I was worried about going high again because my blood sugar went back down to about 130, 140 that night. And then it went back up, but I hadn't ate any carbs. And it was about 380 when I decided to just change up the whole thing. So I went about three days with some bad insulin. But luckily, I'm back down to 150s and 130s for the rest of the time being. Wow. Yeah. So I have the fail this week. And... This week was actually pretty good, so I couldn't exactly come up with any real fails, which is awesome. But something I have noticed is my unwillingness to really think about what diabetes complications actually look like. I watched the PBS documentary Blood Sugar Rising, which we talked about a few episodes ago. And one of the main stories the documentary followed was of a man in his mid-30s who ended up with an ulcer on his foot, and he had to get his toe amputated by the end of the documentary. It was a really uncomfortable reminder that some people do not take care of themselves. And there's a real reason our doctors tell us to make sure we can feel our feet and to take care of ourselves. So when I was watching the documentary, I was really kind of squicked out, super uncomfortable when, whenever they had that, that guy on the screen because they were talking about amputations and like, I don't want to think about that. So that was, that was a little icky, but that's my opinion. I know some people out there find find 
learning about this really helpful because it helps them avoid it, kind of like a scare tactic, but I just don't, I don't want any of that. Jesse, what is our hack this week? All right. So our hack this week is for our long road trips and our car trip people. So if you ever go on long car rides and you find that your test meter is not fully charged, meaning it has like a little low battery warning, you can use the same USB charger that you use for your phone with in your car or your testing kit. So I actually tried this out just on a whim because I was thinking about ways I could charge my meter at work and not really have to worry about it. It wasn't low or anything. I just wanted to see if it would work. And it does. Just plug it into where you would plug your phone cord into for the car, and it should charge. It uses the same USB as any other phone charger does, except for the iPhone 11, I believe, just because they have the round edges. So that's interesting because I don't think uh, a lot of phones use the micro USB port anymore. Because mine has the USB-C, which is the bi-directional. Mm-hmm. And I think that's also what the iPhones use. So... No, no, no. I mean, from like the car, the cube. Oh, like, uh, oh, the okay. Like lighters. the actual, like the adapter. Yeah, yeah the, the actual adapter. adapter. Yeah. So, okay. So, if your adapter has the USB port, like a USB three port, then it's then you can. Yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah. So my my phone is actually USB C to USB C. So if I u- tried to use the same port or adapter as my other cords, then it wouldn't work. <laughs> so I have to be very specific about which cords I use. Right. And that's what I was kind of talking about with iPhone 11, I think, does that too, where they have to be a specific size for the USB insert because they changed theirs. So it won't fit other products. This is a good hack if you're in a pinch, but it probably isn't a good hack to do it every single time because there's different power requirements. Oh yeah, definitely don't do it like just to charge it like once a week. Just if you need to, it's there for you. If you're in dire straits and you have no other chargers, like I did when I was on a trip last year and I didn't have my charger with me, I probably should have looked at that. (laughs) I mean. (laughs) But I didn't, but it ended up fine anyway. All right, let's dive into our episode with Stacey Juba. Welcome to the show, Stacey. It's good to have you on. Oh, thank you for having me. So let's just dive right in. Give us the rundown of who you are and the role that diabetes plays in your life. I'm a fiction author, a freelance developmental editor, and I teach online courses for writers. And I also have two daughters and my younger daughter, who is 12 now, going on 13 this summer. She was diagnosed with type 1 when she was six years old in kindergarten. So diabetes is a huge part of our life. (laughs) Wow. What was kind of her diagnosis story? So how did you find out? She had had a lot of symptoms. She was going to the bathroom a lot. I I noticed a lot of mood swings. And I took her to the doctor a couple of times. She had just started kindergarten. So it was September and October. And they tested her urine and they said it was fine both times. And they really thought that she was having anxiety over starting kindergarten, full day kindergarten. And I asked them if they thought it could be diabetes because I knew the symptoms. And they said, you know, we could keep that on the back burner, but it wasn't really likely because she was, she didn't really have any other symptoms and the mood swings seemed to go more with anxiety and, you know, starting something new. So just the teacher and I, we just kept corresponding because she would email me and say, you know, she's still going to the bathroom like eight times a day. And, and we were comparing notes. And then in December, we noticed she was drinking more. And Christmas Eve, I noticed she was using the bathroom a lot. And then 
it's just becoming more and more obvious to me. And I really knew in my heart it was diabetes because I was researching the symptoms and she had other symptoms like dry skin. So um, two days after Christmas, I made a doctor's appointment and it was, they wanted me to wait until Monday. And I said, no, I, I really I wanted to have her screen for diabetes. So they let me bring her in. And even then the doctor said, you know, I really don't think she has diabetes. She just looks too healthy. And I'm thinking she's <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. She was up all night. She was freezing and having chills. I just didn't think she was looking too healthy. And then um, they had us go back after they took the urine test. And then as we were getting in the door, the doctor called and said, I'm so sorry, but I need you to come back to do a finger stick because there was sugar in the urine. So, And then she was in the hospital for a few days while they trained us and everything. So you knew about the symptoms before she was diagnosed. Was there any family history? Like, how did you know about the symptoms beforehand? I mean, I knew a little bit. My mother-in-law had type two and she was on insulin. So I'd seen her, I'd seen her have some bad lows where she was dizzy and I'd heard her talk about highs, but I didn't know what number constituted a low or constituted a high. And I was also, I'd been a newspaper reporter and I'd done a lot of health writing and I'd written an article or two about it. I think I remember covering a JDRF event one time. And really all that stuck with me was the symptoms. I knew the symptoms, but the, I think part of me was in a little bit of denial also because the doctors were telling me, you know, you know don't worry, you know, she, she's, she doesn't seem to have any other symptoms. So it was, it's probably psychological. So I just kept having it in the back of my mind, but I just knew my own daughter and it was just becoming more and more clear that something was wrong. And then the more I read about the symptoms, issues just had like literally every symptom on the, on the list. So I think one thing I wish I had known was I wish I had known to just do a finger stick. <laughs> just, you know, I think I had it in my head or again, it was a little bit of denial. I had it in my head that to be diagnosed, she just had to have a blood test that the doctor had to tell me it was diabetes. And I just kind of thought it was this big thing where the doctor had to you know, feel it was. And in hindsight, I wish I had just knew to go to the store and I knew know more about finger pricks and I could have just pricked her finger. And I, but I didn't know what was a high blood sugar. What was, a, you know, I just didn't know what was normal at the time. And it was just kind of overwhelming because I didn't know if it was in my imagination or, <laughs> or what. So. so how did that diagnosis change your life? Uh, it was definitely life-changing. I mean, it was like a before diabetes <laughs> and after. In the beginning, it was just completely overwhelming. It was just completely devastating because she was so, so little, you know, trying to explain it to her what was happening. The shots were tough. We had a hard time, like with the nurses. The doctor was fine, but the nurses, I just didn't find them very encouraging or sympathetic. They just didn't have much patience for a new family, so that made it harder. So we switched doctors. So that was kind of a little bit of a journey trying to find the right match. And then it was just learning about, I, I was learning more from Facebook groups than I was learning from the endo's office. That's why, how I found out about the Dexcom, which was just coming out. It wasn't approved for kids at that time, but we were able to get her on the Dexcom. And then we got our, a pump. She went on the Animus pump about six months after she was diagnosed. And it was just such a big adjustment. She hated the needles, the shots, but then and we thought the pump would be easier, but she hated the set changes. So it was just trying to make her more comfortable with it. 
she was very into Legos. So we had a big map of Heart Lake City with the Lego friends. <laughs> and, you know, after every set change, she'd move a point on the board. And then, you know, she'd get little prizes after every certain amount, like little prizes, like a Lego friends book or a small set. You know, and then if she had cut to like 50 spaces, she'd get a bigger set. So there's some bribery <laughs> involved. So it's a lot, but now, you know, we're used to it. It's, it's just part of our lives now and we've learned to adapt to it. But at the time it was just very overwhelming. And, you know, why, why did this have to happen to her? So what are some of your least favorite and favorite things about diabetes? And then what are your daughter's least and favorite things about diabetes? <laughs> I think the positive aspects is that she's just very independent and self-sufficient and resilient, disciplined, determined. And I think a lot of that comes with having to learn how to take care of herself. I mean, she's just very responsible with taking care of it. And least favorite for me is just like sick days are always nerve wracking and it's checking the ketones. So frequently trying to get her to drink every like 10 or 20 minutes. Those are stressful. For her, her favorite thing is camp. She's been going to a day camp for six years, so she absolutely loves that. And she's made a few friends through activities that she's done where she's just, there'll be her and, and one other child with diabetes there, and they'll instantly bond once they find each other. Like she's met someone at karate, gymnastics, and drama. And so she really likes, you know, just finding someone else. Most of her friends don't have diabetes, but she likes that experience of having those friends who do have it also. And what she tells me the worst part is set failures in the middle of the night where we realize she's 400 and the set is not working and then we have to wake her up and give her a shot, change the set. That Those have been hard because she's not very cooperative <laughs> at three in the morning. <laughs> she's not fond of set changes to begin with, so at three in the morning, <laughs> those can be tough. And then it's hard for me too, just making sure I stay awake you know, setting multiple alarms to make sure I don't fall asleep so I can keep checking the ketones and make sure it comes down. So you mentioned Dexcom and Animus as the CGM and pump. Is she still on the Animus or did she have to switch since Animus went out of business? She had to switch and, and that was hard at first because at the time we loved the Animus, very used to it. And then when they went out of business, you know, we thought we could we just stay on it for a while. At the time, we weren't sure when the Bionic Pancreas was going to come out. So we were hoping we could stay on it for like another year and just kind of see what else was available. But then it broke. So we had to, we had to switch pumps pretty quickly. And we wound up with the T-Slim. So now she's on the Control IQ. And we really like that. I really like that too. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, on, I'm on the Dexcom and, and Control IQ with T-Slim. So it's pretty awesome. <laughs> it is. It is. It almost is like a bionic pancreas to some degree. A little bit, yeah. All right. Have you found any like diets or like food protocols that work really well for your daughter? So like calling in, I do low carb, I'm vegetarian. Have you found anything that works really well for you? No, she pretty much just eats normally. Just like we'll do extended boluses, like if she's having something that's slow digesting, like pizza or mac and cheese and just at night, we got her into the habit of just having a lighter snack at night because we found if she had more than like 25 carbs, sometimes the insulin would just be a little more unpredictable where sometimes she might go low because of the insulin or sometimes she might go high. That's been better with the control IQ, but like she's not going to have like an ice cream or a big piece of cake at like nine o'clock at night. It's, it's more of a 
lighter snack. But other than that, for the most part, she eats pretty normally for her diabetes. She does have like a mild dairy intolerance. So that's more where our dietary issues come from. Like she'll have, most of the time she'll have like cashew-based ice cream and she doesn't drink regular milk. So that's been more our dietary focus. So when you guys go out to eat, what are some big changes that you guys noticed from pre-diagnosis and then post-diagnosis? That was a big change. I mean, one thing I should add is that as far as home eating, we did get a carb scale, a nutrition scale early on, and that has been very helpful. I still, we can eyeball things more now than we could then. It's been almost seven years, but I'll still weigh things every day, like serving a mashed potatoes or I'll cut up an apple and I'll weigh that. In the beginning, I had another scale that I would take with us to restaurants. I don't do that anymore, but <laughs> more confident now. But for the first few years, I did have this bag where I looked the scale around with me and I did like carb factors. Like I was using my calculator trying to figure out the carbs. If like if it was a local restaurant and it wasn't a chain, you know, if it was a chain, at least you could look up the nutrition information online. But some case, some cases they didn't have that, and, and sometimes even if there was nutrition information, what the serving they give you doesn't necessarily match. <laughs> you know, to what drinking milk, like it would be the milk in a different size cup. So it's like, no, that's not that's that's more carbs than what it's saying, or that serving a French fries. There's no way it's that. You know. So I think we became more aware of, of eyeballing it. And so we're more confident now, but we do have a book, a little notebook that it, I carry around where it has, we just wrote down the carb information for the most meals she gets typically. Certain restaurants, she tends to get certain things. So, so we'll just look in the book and, and see. And then if it's something new, then we'll go online and we'll just try to get an idea. But buffets are tough that is the one thing that's tough. So we don't do buffets very much. Like we'll do Chinese buffet on New Year's Eve and for on vacation, there's a buffet we like to do, but that's can be hard. That's a lot of extended bolus and just keeping an eye on it. And um, we did a breakfast buffet in Disney World a few years ago and that did not go well. We, we thought we were doing a good job carb counting, but she went to like 400 very quickly. When I was taking a nap, she literally, I woke up and she was 400 and she was not in a good mood. She wound up not you know, not feeling well. So that pretty much affected our whole day. So kind of going careful. back to, to dragging <laughs> the food scale with you into restaurants. <laughs> yeah. Do you ever get really weird looks from people for that? Yeah, sometimes. And she would get impatient, like, you really have to bring that with us? I said, yes, it makes me feel better. <laughs> so how do you handle that when other people give you weird looks about bringing a food scale into a restaurant? <laughs> Just ignored it. Because I mean, I wish she had the Dexcom, but it was before the, the G6. You still had to do finger sticks more often. So sometimes I just remember her doing a lot more finger sticks than she does now. Now she doesn't do finger sticks that often unless we, if we think she's usually lower and usually high. We just want to double check it. But back then it seemed like we were always pulling out the finger pricker also. And we got looks for that too. So this just was one more thing. You know? And nobody gave us like mean looks. It was just more curious, you know, and the waiters usually wouldn't mention it, but I could see them just like what she doing? <laughs> you know? So something we like to ask all of our guests is, what does burnout mean to you? And since you don't have diabetes, but your daughter does, what does parent burnout mean to you? And maybe what does burnout mean to your daughter? We talked about this and I think we both felt, we both kind of said it at the same time. It's like when everything, everything was going well. And then all of a sudden it isn't like something goes wrong. Like the first time was when our animus pump broke and we just didn't expect that. And we were 
it wasn't like we had a lot of time to make the decision. We were rushed to it. So we tried one pump and it just wasn't working well for us. So then, then we wound up getting the T-Slim and she wound up liking that. But that time in between, it was just really stressful. We were both getting frustrated. And then more recently, about a year ago, she also has asthma that flares up once in a while. And last fall, she had this really bad asthma flare up that went on for about six weeks. I think it was a mix of allergies and some kind of virus. And she wound up having to go on prednisone. And I thought I'd been through like everything with diabetes, but prednisone really raises your blood sugar. And we had to like double her insulin. So I was calling her doctors about three times saying, sure, this isn't too much. And we were constantly, this was also like her second week in middle school with a new nurse and just a whole new school. So it was just a bad time. And on top of that, she was doing nebulizer treatments like three times a day and she's on a ton of pills. So it was just a tough time. And burnout for me was being up. I was constantly setting my alarm because normally I do set my alarm in the middle of the night for like 3 a.m. I set a few different alarms just just in case I sleep through a Dexcom because I'm the only one, (laughs) for whatever reason, I'm the only one that wakes up for the Dexcom alarms and once in a while I'll not hear it. So, but I do hear my alarms, they'll keep going off until I respond to one of them. So I just like to look at the, just look at my phone and just make sure everything, you know, it's in a good range and everything's working properly. But when she was on prednisone, I was setting it for like every hour or two because it was just so unpredictable. It didn't know, you know, if she was going to go really high, but we were doubling our insulin so she could crash. So, and that went on for six weeks. So that was, I think we were both feeling pretty burned out (laughs) then between the asthma and then the effect on the diabetes. What kind of things helped with that burnout? Just giving her downtime to relax. And, you know, we spent a lot of time just kind of, she would have trouble sleeping at night because the medications would make her kind of wired, you know. So if the high is if she was high, that, that tends to make her more like because she can't fall asleep. She's just more, you know, just more hyper, I guess. So if we had nights like that, we just kind of, you know, just lay down together and read or talk, you know, or even if we have to turn on the TV for a little while. So just trying to, you know. <laughs> trying to get through it. And I was just going to remind myself that even though it's, we're going through a tough time, there are some families who would trade what they're going through in a minute for what we're going through. So I think that's just something I've always had to put in my head also that, you know, I wish you didn't have to have anything, but at least this is something we can deal with and we can manage. What kind of advice do you have for other parents who are dealing with burnout? I think you just stay in touch with your health team a lot make sure you feel comfortable with them. Because I mean, we switched doctors twice because it just wasn't the right fit. And even with the nurses there, we just, I think that's really important. And if there's something that's just not working, you know, if the doses you're on and everything don't seem to be working, I think learn how, just learn as much as you can. I was able to reach the point where I could start changing the pump settings without always checking in with our nurse practitioner. Like in the beginning, I never would have seen myself doing that. But then eventually, you know, I just read a lot of books about insulin pumps and I took some classes online, just like these free classes that pump companies were doing. And I just learned as much as I could attending webinars and learned about sugar surfing and things like that. And that made me feel like I had a lot more control. I feel like knowledge is power. And the more you know, the more the more confident you can be. And also, I think just realize that, you know, that they're going to be okay and, you know, you'll you'll get through it. You know, everybody has these ups and downs times. 
Very cool. So have you seen any major changes in diabetes or with diabetes over the course of diagnosis, like therapies, diets, general expectations of life with type 1? I think the technology has changed a lot because when we first started the Dexquamia web was just kind of coming out. I heard people talking about it in Facebook groups. When I first mentioned it to the nurse at the first place we were at before we wound up switching, she they discouraged me from <laughs> from trying it. You know, one of them said, You're gonna learn this from watching a video online. I wouldn't put that on my kid. <laughs> Whereas all these parents were telling me, Oh, it's wonderful. So, you know, now I don't think most nurses, uh, diabetes educators would say that, but then it was just kind of a new technology. And now, you know, Dexcoms are integrated into the pumps and everything. So that was a, a big thing. It was really nice to her when, because when she first started, she would wear the Dexcom receiver, like in a belt around her waist. And she didn't really like the belts. We tried so many belts and they would just be hanging off. She just didn't like them. And it was great when we got the T-Slim and it was, the DEX was integrated into the pump so that she only had one device. I have been following like the bionic pancreas studies and everything. So we're looking forward to seeing what's going to develop with that. So, and it seems like with the Dexcom, now we don't have to calibrate anymore. So that's great. And um, it seems like they're working on making it smaller and more advances. So I think there's a lot of great advances on the horizon. And I was excited with the nasal glucagon. We've never had to use glucagon, but that always <laughs> scared me because it was just so many steps. Yeah, I was always afraid if we ever had to use it, I'd just panic and wouldn't know how to mix it and everything. So I think it's great that now they have the nasal one. And I think there's also the, the shot that it's already pre-mixed. So. Sounds like you stay kind of on top of all of the diabetes news and technology advancements. I do. Yeah. I, I get a lot of different newsletters in my email and then I'm in some groups online. So I used to kind of, that used to be my focus a lot where, where I would watch a lot of videos and, and listen to a lot of podcasts and just re- do a lot of reading. And I think I've reached a point where I felt like I, we were at a really good place and I didn't have to obsess over it as much. So I still, I still try to keep up on everything definitely, but not to the extent that it was before. I was able to kind of start focusing more like on my career and, and less on feeling like I was going to miss something, <laughs> you know, I was going to miss the next great thing. Yeah. So it's, it's just balanced trying to learn as much as I can, but without obsessing over it. And I think in the beginning, as a parent, you do obsess over it, <laughs> trying to learn as much as you can. Yeah. Knowing what you know now, what do you wish you had done differently the first few years of your daughter's diagnosis? I wish... I wish I'd been calmer. I remember in the beginning, I was very angry. I remember screaming at my husband. I was just overwhelmed, you know, and just just kind of losing it a few times, you know, and I think sometimes she saw me lose it. And, you know, I wish I could have just been more in control, but I just felt so out of control. I remember one time at school when I was picking her up from school, I would, I would just get really nostalgic and wistful and emotional where I'd remember before she had diabetes when I used to pick her up or when we used to pick up her older sister and she'd be so excited to pick her up and she didn't have diabetes then. I remember one time I just slamming the car door because I was just, I was just like so angry and you know it was just like why why does she have to go through this? But I think I wish that I had just maybe just accepted it more you know so that maybe I could have been a better role model at the time you know I think I just I wound up having to do some counseling and I think that helped. And I think having the 
once we got the Dexcom, that made a huge difference. I mean, that was like a total game changer. But before that, before the Dexcom, it was just very stressful. And yeah, so it's, I, I still think it's the people who don't have a Dexcom, I just met, wow. It just, because <laughs> it's for the Dexcom for me, it's just, it just really helps to calm me down. <laughs> I was a very late adopter to the Dexcom and I regret waiting so long. <laughs> I know my mom, if, if they had had the Dexcom out when I was a kid, that would have been such a lifesaver, but it wasn't. And so I waited until 2015 to get on this on the sensor, which was yeah, a long I, time for me. I have a friend that was diagnosed when we were, I think when we were in seventh grade and she still doesn't have one. I mean, her doctors tried to get her on it and she's, she tried it a little bit and then uh, I think something happened to it and it broke and everything. And she just, it's on her to-do list, but she's just so used to being without it that, you know, I think you get, you just get in cheer, you get confident, you know how your body feels and everything. So I guess if that's all, if that's all you've known, you know, it's, it's sometimes it's hard to try something new, but for us, I think I'm grateful that we had it right in the beginning. So for her, that is the technology is her normal. Whereas if you've had it for years and you're just doing it a certain way, then, you know, it can be hard to change. Do you have any favorite memories involving type 1 diabetes, like any walks, any runs, anything that really stands out as being really good and wholesome and like wholehearted? When she was in like third, third or fourth grade, I organized a JDRF walk at her school. So, so that was, that was nice. I think we raised almost $10,000 and they, JDRF came in and they did a little talk to her school. So I think that helped because it's at her age, she was still getting a lot of questions from kids. And then, so this helped them to understand it more. And it was a fun day for them. They have popsicles at the end and everything. So they brought in popsicles. And then I think the first time I saw her after an overnight at camp, she hasn't done an overnight week yet, but she, they have like a optional one night overnight, like during the last night. And when she was about seven, her first time doing it, she was so torn about whether she wanted to do it or not, whether she was ready. And I honestly wasn't sure how it was going to go, whether, <laughs> whether we'd get a phone call in the middle of the night, but we didn't. So I figured it must've gone well. And then when I, we went to pick her up. We just saw her walking with some of her friends and talking with them. And she just looked so happy. And then when she did tell us about it, she said the overnight was just so much fun. It was better than Christmas. And I think that was just really heartwarming to, to see that something good had come out of it. Do you have any advice for parents with kids who have newly diagnosed diabetes? Just, again, realize it's, it's going to be okay that you know, it's very, it's life-changing and it's overwhelming at first, but it, it's definitely not the worst diagnosis you could get. And, you know, you'll get through it and definitely, you know, find a doctor team or medical team that you're comfortable with. And, you know, it might not be one you're assigned to in the hospital. You might have to look around a little bit, but that, but that makes a huge difference when you're working with somebody that you trust and that, you know, you don't have to be afraid to ask questions that, that they're willing to talk to you in between appointments. And then I'd say get a Dexcom <laughs> as a parent. I think it gives a lot of, it just gives a lot of peace of mind to be able to see, you know, what it's doing. And we personally like being on a pump much better. She was on shots for a while and she was on the pen and we just like the pump much better. She said she just, she doesn't, she can't even imagine not having a pump now because she's just so used to it. So switching gears a little bit into your author work, because you were a fiction writer, where do you get the inspiration for your books and your online courses? So I get the inspiration for my books. Just I, I just tend to get an idea. Like 
my first mystery novel was inspired by my days of working at a newspaper before I was a reporter. I started out as an Obert writer and an editorial assistant. And one of my jobs was compiling the 25 years ago today column from the microfilm. So I got this idea, like, what if an editorial assistant came across an old murder on the microfilm and was obsessed with solving it? So, so then I used the newspaper setting and just kind of had to find a character that went along with it. I have a series of chiclet romantic comedy books set at a fairy tale theme park. And the first one, Fooling Around with Cinderella, I came up with when we were visiting a fairy tale theme park and we had just gone to visit Cinderella. <laughs> and I thought, like, there were a lot of kids, like, they were all just gathered around her and she was really patient and everything. And I thought, you know, what if there was a Cinderella who didn't want to be a Cinderella, <laughs> but she got roped into this job for some reason? And what if she, her Prince Charming, like, was her boss, you know, who worked at the theme park? So. <laughs> So, yeah, so I just kind of get ideas from the world around me. And that book, Fooling Around with Cinderella, I actually had to, that's the book I was working on when she was diagnosed. So I actually wound up putting it aside for about a year because it was such a happy, upbeat, cheerful book. And I just couldn't get into that mindset to finish it. So it was like, it was really, I felt like it was a really accomplishment when I was able to finish it because that wasn't just about finishing the book. It was about kind of accepting that we had this new normal and that I was finally able to focus on something besides diabetes because she was in a place where she was doing well. So what about your online courses? And my online courses were, that's inspired because I've been a developmental editor for several years. So authors will hire me to read their book manuscripts, um, mostly fiction, but I do some nonfiction also. And I'll just, I'll give them a lot of feedback on pretty much every aspect of the book. Like I'll write them a eight to 10 page letter telling them my thoughts. And then I'll also mark up the manuscript with some comments and some revisions. And what I was finding was that most of the beginner writers, especially were hiring an editor before the manuscript was really ready. And a lot of beginner writers think that their manuscript just will need like one round of editing and then that's it. And what the truth of the matter is that it's, it's, it could be multiple rounds of editing and round of editing be a few hundred dollars. And if your book ideally would need seven or eight rounds of editing, you know, that's, most authors can't afford that. So I was inspired to create a course called Book Editing Blueprint, a step-by-step plan in making your novels publishable so that I could teach writers in a more efficient and cheaper way because it's, I think it's just really expensive to just hire an editor who, who pretty much acting like your coach and personal instructor that's just very expensive where if in this course I just have it laid out in a way that they'll learn pretty much everything that I would be evaluating in a manuscript so that they can learn to do their first drafts themselves or earlier drafts themselves there's just 10 modules that cover different things like characters and setting and plot and line editing going over the most common mistakes that I see. And then there's a workbook where they can evaluate the manuscript. And then there's a checklist at the end where they can use it to to make sure that they don't overlook anything. That should be able to take them through some more rewrites. And then once they feel like they've done everything they can, I mean, it doesn't have to be perfect by any means, but it should be a lot further than, you know, if they hadn't gone through the course, then they can, then that's the point where they should hire an editor and start investing in editing. So hopefully that will make the process less expensive and will cut down on some of those rounds of going back and forth. That sounds so useful. 
I will say that I did hire my own development auditor for my book and she made it so much better just from one round and I'm still working <laughs> on the rewrite. <laughs> yeah. And I think developmental editing, it's still like, it's really important. You, you definitely don't want to just take a class and then send it off to an agent or to self-publish because developmental editing, they just see it in another, in another way. But it's nice when we get a manuscript to edit that's at the point where we can focus more on the individual manuscript and not so much on just the gen- general things like, you know, show, don't tell, and you're using this word, you know, you're using the word look 300 times in the manuscript or, you're, you know, that kind of thing. So it's, it's just much easier, I think, to give valuable feedback on a on a manuscript that's just further along. Otherwise, a lot of the feedback tends to be general. But I think either way, it can be really helpful. It's just, it could be, you know, you could get the feedback from taking a class or you could get the feedback from an editor, but there's some writers who it's just, it's going to be several rounds. You know, if they're a new writer, it could be multiple rounds going back and forth and some writers can't afford that. But it definitely is rewarding to help. <laughs> to help um, authors with the books. I really appreciate it if they tell me that, oh, you know, you've helped me. So that's good that you've had that experience. So when did you realize you wanted to start writing books? Um, I started writing like in third grade and I wrote my first book when I was 16. It was a young adult hockey novel called Face Off and I entered it in a contest for teenage writers and I found it one, so it was published when I was 18. It's actually still in print and I recently published a sequel to it that was written 25 years later. So that was kind of fun. Pretty much I was experimenting with the idea of writing books when I was a teenager, trying that one. And then having that be published and having that experience, I got some letters from kids. It was a young adult book. So I got some letters from middle schoolers and high schoolers that enjoyed the book and it got some good reviews and I did some book signings and that just kind of solidified the fact that I wanted to keep writing. So there was a lot of years of rejection in between the publication of that book and my next book. So, you know, it definitely wasn't always easy, but I'm happy that I've been able to, I publish about 10 books now, a mix like mysteries, um, romantic comedy, um, young adult and children's books. So I'm gl- glad that my dream was finally able to come true because there were some years I was, <laughs> some years I was looking a little grim. So. <laughs> That makes me so happy, just like knowing that your like story is such a success. Like that, that's just amazing to me. What impact do you want to have with writing your books? I think my books t- tend to be more like escape fiction and entertainment reading. So, you know, I know when I'm going like through a, a stressful time, sometimes I just want to escape with a good book or a good movie or TV show, and and that's or like a beach read, you know, on vacation or something. And that's the kind of book I'm trying to give to people just it's something that will just take them away from their daily stress and that that they'll enjoy and that hopefully they'll remember it after and that they'll be that they'll be motivated to pick up some of my other books to kind of see what else I've written so so you've uh, published 10 books but how many books have you actually written that haven't been published oh there's a whole drawer full of them <laughs> most of them were in like my early 20s like my college years there were some that yeah, I, I took them out and said, oh, should I rewrite this? And then I read through it. And I said, oh, gosh, no. I <laughs> but the one I did rewrite was the sequel to Face Off called Offsides. I, I had a draft of that written when I was about 19. And it hadn't gotten accepted. There was a big change of editors at the publishing company. And then I wasn't able to, to get it published anywhere else because 
other publishers didn't want to publish a sequel to a book that was published by another company. So that was in my drawer for a lot of years. But when the original book Face Off went out, went out of print, when when ebooks like Kindle and Nook, you know, when that started to come out and then print on demand, I brought back the book. I did an updated copy of it. I released it as an ebook and as a paperback and as an audible audiobook. And it did well. It's, it's, that's actually been like my best selling book. It just like sells copies every day. So, and I would get sometimes grandmothers or mothers would email me and say, like, is there a sequel? And that finally one day I just said, you know, I'm going to pull out the sequel and take a look at it. And it was a mess. <laughs> it was an absolute mess. But I felt like, I felt like it was workable and I totally rewrote it. I had to do some interviews with hockey organizations and do a lot of research and pretty much rewrite it word for word to, to kind of bring it up to the level I was at now. And also because a lot of it was just outdated. I wanted to put in texting and social media and, and all of that. And um, so that was like a big something that was on my to-do list for years that I was afraid to tackle. So that was like a big accomplishment getting that book <laughs> out. And I think that's the only book in my drawer that will ever be published. So what does your writing process look like? I usually just start with the, the an idea, you know, like the, the theme parks and reluctant theme parks in Cinderella, for example. And then I come up with a character that would fit that scenario. And then I do an outline where I try to figure out the plot and the supporting characters. I might do a little free writing to, and fill out some character charts to get to know my main characters. And then I just kind of jump into it. I'm definitely a writer that has to have an outline. I can't just wing it. But the outline does evolve, so it's not necessarily written in stone. Sometimes the characters will do things that surprise me, and then I'll change the outline. But I always need to know what I'm writing the next day. So before I finish, I'll just make myself a, a look at my outline and, or just make myself a little list on a piece of scrap paper that's just a list of things I need to include in the next scene. And sometimes that might mean doing a little bit of research if I need to describe something and I might like look at the internet for some inspiration of how to describe a place or a particular thing. Like, like in my Cinderella book, I, had, I did a lot of research into theme parks and Cinderella dresses and, you know, princess things. So I, I did a lot of research. So I find that if I don't do the research first, sometimes I'll just sit and my hands will freeze on the keyboard and I get a little blocked. But if I do the research and I know, I have an idea of what's going to be coming up next, then that definitely helps to keep the words flowing. Do you ever weave diabetes into your stories? I haven't yet. I've, I have thought about doing a third hockey book and having one of the characters have diabetes. So I've been thinking about that. I haven't started yet because I've been kind of focusing on getting my classes going and some of my editing, but I definitely have started some files where I've had some, done some research and made lists of like uh, books by, um, by professional athletes with diabetes so I can you know, read those and I've saved some articles just on a file to, you know, to refer to later because I think I'll have, I'd have to do a lot of research. Uh, the one thing that, that's been in the back of my mind is technology keeps changing so much, but so I think that's something that held it back because if I put like a, describe like a pump and, you know, it could be kind of like obsolete in the next few years. But I think at least now with the way the pumps are now, it does a little bit it's, you know, a correcting highs and lows. I mean, I could probably just be kind of general about it. I mean, you know, and do something like that. But yeah, that, that's a lot of things. That's like one thing that's been in my mind is, okay, how can I present it in a way that won't get outdated, but that will give like an accurate 
you know, perception of how a, like a hockey player would be handling diabetes. So since the first hockey book, Face Off, was your most popular book, what's your second most popular book? The sequel, Offsides, has been popular. And then I think 25 years ago today has, has done well. That, that got to number five in the Nook store and 30 on the Kindle paid list. So that, that did well. And I'm trying to get the word out about fooling around with Cinderella and um, the second book in the series, Prancing Around with Sleeping Beauty. <laughs> so I think those are fun, fun, definitely good, fun escape reading. So what was the most fun book to write that you've done so far? Fooling Around with Cinderella was fun because I did a lot of research on theme parks. So my husband and I got engaged at Epcot and we went to Paris and London on our honeymoon and we went to Disneyland Paris. And then we've also been to Disneyland and California. So we love theme parks. And then our kids love theme parks also. So we would take them around to some of the local theme parks and take them to Disney. So it was just fun to immerse myself on a book set at a theme park. Like I did a lot of, watched a lot of YouTube videos by former Disney princesses giving like a behind the scenes look at what it's like to be a princess and former characters that would dress up like in the costumes about what it's like to be like behind the mask and things like that and listen to a lot of podcasts and interviews with like employees at like Six Flags and theme parks so it was just a fun thing to research and then just a lot of fun just playing with that Cinderella theme and starting the dress and figuring out how is the, how is the shoe the glass slipper how is that going to fit into it I could talk for days about book writing but we're moving into our wrap-up <laughs> so what advice do you have for all the young diabetics out there? Well, I asked my daughter about that and she, her advice is that one of the hardest things for her to get used to was all the questions that other kids would ask. Like they would ask like at school or if, you know, if she, if she was in another group, like if she was at a camp or lessons somewhere. In the beginning, you tend to get a lot of questions like, when she was younger, she'd get questions from younger kids like, do you eat a lot of sugar? <laughs> Did you eat a lot of sugar? Is that why you have it? Diabetes or like, what's that on your arm? She you know, gets that, you know, with the Dexcom sensor or why are you doing that to your finger? And in the beginning, it was kind of frustrating, but her advice is to be patient and just educate them because they will, they're just curious and they want to understand it better. And once they do, like she said, nobody you know, nobody at school ever asked me about it anymore. They, they just, you know, it's like they forgot about it. You know, like when she went to, she used to be a little nervous about going to like camps that weren't diabetes camp because she'd be with a new group of kids and everything. But you might get a few questions at first. And then once you tell them, they're like, oh, okay. So, so that's her advice is just to be, you know, be patient you know, and to expect there's going to be some questions, but it's not a big deal. And they'll just get used to it. So. Are you working on any projects that you can give us a couple of hints to that you're excited about? I'm just working on some more, a couple more classes. I'm working on like a light version of my book editing blueprint class that focuses more on just the line editing and copy editing component and putting in a few lessons for nonfiction writers. And then I have like a time management class for writers that I used to teach. And I'm just kind of going through it and updating it. And I'm, I want to, um, you know, launch that and a couple more classes I have like ideas. So I'm just trying to kind of get all my classes out there. And then if you go do another Storybook Valley book in my theme park series or work on that third hockey novel. 
So if people want to connect with you, where can they find you online? Uh, I have an author website, www.stacyjuba.com. And that has links to all my books and I have a blog. And then I have a site for writers. If there's any writers listening, shortcutsforwriters.com. And I have a free five-day line editing class that they can sign up for where they'll get line editing lessons delivered to their inbox. And I have a Facebook group called the Shortcuts for Writers Editing Made Simple Facebook group. So it's definitely feel free to check out my website. My email address is in the contact section. So any questions, I'm always happy to talk to readers or writers <laughs> or <laughs> anybody who has new family struggling with the diabetes diagnosis. I, a lot of people help me in the beginning, like on the, the Facebook group. So I'm always happy to kind of try to reassure, reassure someone else and answer questions based on our experiences. So. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been great talking to you. Thank you for inviting me. All right, Jesse, what is our question for the audience this week? All right. Our lovely question for you, our lovely audience is, have you ever read a book with the main character who has type 1 diabetes? And if so, please comment and let us know. Have you, Colleen? No, but I kind of want to. So this is, this is why I want people to actually answer this one, because I need recommendations for books with the characters have type 1. Yeah, I've read a couple when we were, when I was a Panther camp, camper, the ones they would put in your backpacks as like goodies and treats at the end of the week and stuff. There was one with Hannah Montana in it, and that one is very dated for all you youngsters out there. That just shows how old I am. I mean, I watched <laughs> Hannah Montana too. Yeah. So I read those, like the Lily ones through the pharmaceutical company, but I haven't seen any really good ones. So if you've got them, let me know because I want to read them too. That is it for this episode of This is Type 1. Thank you so much to Stacy Juba for coming on as a guest to the show. You can find Stacy's books online at stacyjuba.com and her name is spelled S-T-A-C-Y-J-U-B-A. You can also find her on Facebook where she has a Facebook group called Shortcuts for Writers, Editing Made Simple, and I'm totally going to go join that. She also has another website called shortcutsforwriters.com. You can find the show notes at inspiredforward.com episode 46. That's the number 46. And if you have an idea for an upcoming episode, please leave us a comment or send an email. You can get straight to our podcast page by going to thisistype1.com. Our music is by Joseph McDade, and our audio wizard is my husband, Tim. This is the perfect time to learn how to manage your mind. If you're stressed, burned out, overwhelmed, and want some help getting back on track and honoring your commitments to yourself, sign up for accountability coaching at inspiredforward.com coaching. I'm on all social media as at inspiredforward, and our email is colleen at inspiredforward.com. And I'm on Instagram as at JJ underscore Crystal K-A-T. Please feel free to send me questions or comments you have about type 1 diabetes or about the show. Thank you so much for listening. If you like this episode, please share it with your friends, family, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, since that really helps other people find us. Be sure to listen next week when we talk about diabetic alert dogs. Remember, you control your diabetes. It doesn't control you. Hey, if you like what you're listening to on this podcast, you have to join us in the Half Dead Pancreas Club. It's my private community where you'll connect face-to-face with other people with type 1 diabetes, get personalized emotional support, and learn how to handle anything T1D throws at you. 
Join us over at inspiredforward.com community. I can't wait to see you there.